July 1944, Los Angeles. Enter Barbara Stanwyck as Phyllis Dietrichson, high atop a looming stairwell clad only in a towel. Enter the femme fatale as we know her into classic Hollywood. Of course, there were femme fatales, cinematic and literary, long before this, but there's just something about Phyllis, enough for Walter Neff to upend everything and swagger his way into uncertainty. Can you blame him? Such is the impact of Barbara Stanwyck walking down those stairs, setting Fred McMurray's life on fire with some of the most incendiary banter ever captured on film. Stanwyck, in her anklet, in her sunglasses, behind those iconic blonde bangs, becoming the very vision of the archetype. So what better place to start our extended foray into the golden age of the femme fatale than here? Double indemnity looms large in the noir consciousness, and pairing it off with anything all but assures some second fiddle syndrome. Counterbalancing the ice-cold Phyllis Dietrichson is a no less chilly but far more sympathetic waitress named Stella, drawn from the comparatively minor Otto Preminger film Fallen Angel. Both women slot neatly into the developing vision of women who pull over-eager protagonists into their wake, but their stories unfold in starkly different fashions. We'll be seeing more of each as we plunge further into the season, but that's down the road. For now, we're settling into the mid-1940s, California, land of drifters and dames and foolhardy insurancemen, land of the American dream. What's your new book about? A detective. He falls for the wrong woman. What happens? She kills him. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you over the warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. You're not too smart, are you? <laughs> I like that in a man. Hate is a very exciting emotion. I hate you so much that I think I'm going to die from it. What have we done to each other? What will we do? I'm not apologizing for what I did. I'm apologizing for what I didn't do. Silencio. Hello, and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films, then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Tristan Johnson, joined by my friend... Brad Bowser. And tonight, we've arrived. Golden age of film noir, and on California soil, no less. Perfect time and place to cut to the heart of our femme fatale exploration. We're showcasing it. Two of the great noir directors this week, including one of the genre's all-time classics. I think we can say we're both pretty excited to dive into some double indemnity, right, Fred? Agreed. I killed Dietrichson. Me, Walter Neff, insurance agent, 35 years old, unmarried, no visible scars. Until a while ago, that is. Yeah, I killed him. Killed him for money and for a woman. It all began last May. All right, Double Indemnity. Uh, came out in 1944, directed by Billy Wilder, starring Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, and Edward G. Robinson, based on the novel by James M. Kane and written by Raymond Chandler and Billy Wilder. Oh, look at that. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably seen this movie, and if you haven't, you should stop and go watch it because it's better than anything we'll ever say on this podcast. But... Uh, <laughs> Once you've watched it and come back, uh, the the film follows Fred McMurray playing Walter Neff, an L.A. insurance agent who starts punching above his weight when he gets involved with disaffected housewife Phyllis Dietrichson, played by Barbara Stanwyck, in her signature role. Phyllis and Walter concoct a very precarious scheme to dispatch her husband and collect the coveted double indemnity payday. And it all almost works. Until it doesn't. You can thank insurance investigator Barton Keyes and his little man for that. Things quickly unravel, and as the framing device has already clued us in, there's no getting out of this for Walter and Phyllis. Ah, this movie is so good. It's, uh, I mean, it's, <laughs> it is a Swiss clock of precision writing and filmmaking. I had not seen this in many years, to the point, and I'm, uh, as a mea culpa, um, at the end of the last episode in the stinger i i believe i said something to the tune of oh we got a double header of dana andrews next week thinking for whatever dumb reason substituting poor fred mcmurray in my mind for dana andrews in this 
I don't know, probably because I also think often about Laura and and that's one of the other great mm. noirs of the era. Uh, but that's another Preminger, not a Wilder. And uh, anyway, uh, not to short, short change Fred McMurray, who um, who does admirably as a man in totally over his head here. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I was. Um, it took us a little while to record this episode. Life got very busy, and for both of us, but um, that gave me a chance to catch up on uh, conversations with Wilder, which is Cameron Crowe's interview book with Wilder. That's as expressly stated in the book, inspired by the uh, Hitchcock Truffaut conversations. Now, I don't think it's as good as that book. Um, Crow's questions are not the questions that I would necessarily ask, but Billy Wilder is as great as expected. And he talks about casting McMurray and taking the the script out to him and McMurray being like, I'm a comedy guy. This isn't uh this isn't my kind of thing. Um and Wilder having to convince him. And I think that plays into him kind of A, the the slight archness to the whole thing, and B him being in over his head, right? That like the actor felt a certain amount of trepidation as well about the uh about the piece. Yeah, it's a uh a, it's an intimidating piece because it starts off where uh it starts right right off telling you where it's going. Mm-hmm. And and it's all about building to that. So I can understand too, you know, once you if you're if you're looking at that script and you see where 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 you know everything is headed, um that I mean on one hand, um, on one hand, it robs a little bit of the suspense of it um, in theory, but it doesn't in this case. You're just like, trying to figure out how in the world did we watching that slow motion train wreck as, as we as we get to that point. Right. Well, it's uh, like where Brian Johnson talks about where it's not a who done it, it's a how done it, right? But the how done it is how did they get caught, not how did they get away with it or how did they do it. Um, and so no, so I still think the tension is there, and I think. Part of that is the way that the um, that first half is just all set up, right? Like it's all build, build, build to the decision moment of killing her husband. And then all those dominoes that got set up slowly fall one by one as things fall apart in the back half. And it's just so careful and precise about it uh, that it's it it plays into the inevitability. Uh, which I think just sort of, in a larger sense, speaks to um, an existentialism in noir, right? That like you're you're fucked no matter what. Yeah, uh, and before we got too much into it, I, we got just to, to touch on the the pedigree behind this this novel or this um, movie. Uh, this is based on a James M. Cain novel, um, who. Of course, has come up before in Postman Always Rings Twice, and he is going to come up again uh, very shortly. And uh, and and this novel he started working on right after Postman. Um, it was it was not published in, until 1943 in a, a, a collection, but it, but it first appeared in 1936 in Liberty Magazine. It had been courted, uh, tossed around as a potential script for Hollywood for some time. Uh, however, Hayes Code being what it was, uh, it didn't really fit the bill of what they were of what Hollywood was doing in the late 30s. Go figure. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not until we we get post Maltese Falcon that that things start opening up a little bit. And uh, and so we have uh, our adaptation finally arriving it all the way in 1944. Uh, Kane's Kane also has a a bit of uh, background in insurance, so he had some knowledge of the industry going in. So that was kind of informing him, um, and that's before we even get Chandler involved, right? Uh, Which apparently wasn't a great another. Uh, the only other tidbit that I really gleaned from that interview book with uh, Wilder was that he did not enjoy working with Chandler. And uh, and he was, okay. he said like anytime I don't collaborate with only work with somebody on one film it's because I didn't like working with them and then I was <laughs> done, um, and so he's like you know we made a great movie and I'd do the do that all again and then and I had no regret saying so long and thanks for all the fish. Does does he address anywhere in there uh, where who made what contributions or how how that all came to be because 
I'm amazed uh, if two people had friction how something this good comes together. Yeah, from, I mean, I feel like he was, if I remember correctly, his point was that Chandler was too much of a poet um, to really be an effective dramatist. Mm. So I feel like the dialogue that I feel like that's kind of coming from from Chandler and also knowing his, you know, his written work, but then that like Wilder was supplying a lot of the and obviously the source material as well was supplying a lot of the like structure and dramatic action of the film. Are you uh, a big Wilder fan? I am, but he's not, I don't know, he's not he's a director who's made a lot of fantastic movies that I love, but he's not a director where I'm like I can't wait to watch me some Wilder. I'm just like, I can't wait to watch it, that movie, even though it's a bunch of them. Um, probably Parks doesn't feel like he's got, he is such a consummate professional who's in service to the material that it, you know, his, he does have a voice in the material. I mean, he's a co-writer, right? And like, and started off as a screenwriter. And so I do like his voice. And, and again, that's sort of not cynicism, but, his his way of looking at the world is is very appealing to me but in terms of his directing his directing is is just intentionally generally verging on invisible he's very polished he's a he's a well-oiled machine and in contrast to someone like lubish who who you know i i totally adore lubish has like this real sense of of chaos like things mm -hmm. could things could could come apart at the seams but you always feel like wilder's holding his his films together there's a strong backbone to them yeah and he, and he said that for i guess i'll do it a couple more tidbits he said that for this one specifically they were trying to do it as stripped down as possible and to achieve basically cinema verite obviously that was not like a concept or even a style that was in effect but the equivalent of that for its time and that it to be as documentarian as possible um but no but they i mean like you know like I said, like I'm not excited to watch a Wilder film, but then I'm like, okay, this, Some Like It Hot, Sunset Boulevard, Ace in the Hole, The Apartment. apartment. I mean, that's five all-time great movies from one director, I'm, I'm a, one writer-director. Um, coming off as we are recording this in a um, you know another Agatha Christie adaptation hitting theaters, I'm uh, I'm I'm very pro witness for the prosecution. That's my witness my for the prosecution. Agatha. Also great. Not, not um, an all time great movie for me like those five, but still a movie that most directors are never lucky enough to have the ability to make. You know to yes. achieve something of that that level. You know so so yeah I, I like yeah his because he doesn't draw attention to himself. I don't get ex excited about him. But also watching a Billy Wilder movie means that you're probably going to watch a, at the very least, very, very good movie. Yeah. Uh, how how you feel about Stanwyck? I mean, she is great in this. She is it's... doing exactly what she needs to do. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, it, this was not my introduction to noir, but it was certainly one of, like, when I was, I didn't watch it until I was in college, but when I, when I saw it, it was very early on in my, like, like understanding what noir is and so it you know it's a pretty pivotal thing and she is she is the femme fatale she is she just seems to embody that totally and i like her i like her a good bit in general i'm i'm always happy to to see stanwick show up i recently saw some of her her uh her 50s westerns uh oh. 40 guns um furies uh, which are which are really good. I really liked her uh, last year uh, when when we were going through the the um, Noir City from the Music Box, and I saw Sorry Wrong Number. I like she's she's real good in that. Uh, Lady Eve, um, of course. Oh uh, yes. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm I'm very pro Stanwyck, but it all comes down to this, right? Yeah, I mean, just and it uh, from a visual level up, it is iconic, right? Like. The, the costumes, the hair, the entrance, the posturing, the dialogue, the character, the performance, it's all iconic. And in the same way that we talk about Bogart doing uh, Marlowe, to the effect that mm -hmm. like, that uh, uh, Steve Martin does Stanwyck in uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. <laughs> like yeah. it is so iconic that he that they had to include that and 
obviously also some like 80s transphobia about men dressing as women but that part aside once they commit to the bit like there's you you had to acknowledge its importance to to the genre that burst of dialogue early on between uh walter and and phyllis that um that i have to drive it around the block uh, a few mm -hmm. times that whole exchange is just it, it, that's and that, in a in a film where everything is is so finely tuned and and just makes me delighted to listen to it that that full stretch is just golden clearly dear listeners we uh, have a lot of appreciation for this movie and uh and and can probably just continue going through uh waxing poetic about it but there's actually some there, there's so much to get into when it, we're, we're here to talk about the femme fatale uh we i think uh i don't know where do, where where do you even start uh with with phyllis's first impressions on on walter how he's i, I don't know you just feel like he's he's doomed the moment he sets eyes on her Right. He is, he is the perfect dupe. And his his narration is so interesting because it does allow a little bit of ironic detachment or distance for the, the audience where you are kind of like, you're talking like you're in control and you kind of started this whole thing. But well, let's let's be clear yeah. about what's what's really going on here. Um, yeah, and she's such a she sets the mold too, right? Like as a by the time you get to the reveal that she also killed the mother and has like mm -hmm. black widowed her way into and then out of this home uh is you know that's that's a, a hundred years or 80 years of uh female characters uh not right there it's such a good reveal it it still feels it still feels fresh when it happens um and 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 I don't know. Um, it's like I think all of that just contributes to why she feels like 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 the pivotal uh, femme fatale character. The and and not that as we're gonna go through here, as as we've already sort of seen, but as we're really gonna see when we when we move forward from here, they're they're not all cut from the same cloth. There's very different um, versions of what the femme fatale looks like, but just in that most iconic of forms, she's. Yeah, <laughs> she's it. I mean, I, there's uh, again so many moments in this, but I think uh, the thing that makes it most is the scene of her in the car as Walter kills her husband, and you just watch like the excitement as she listens to it happen. Um, you know, I think that's that's the moment that seals it. She's not cut from any sympathetic cloth. There's no. plenty, plenty of other uh, of other femme fatales we're going to encounter. There's there there's a, attempts to empathize with them, or they are legitimately good people that just made some bad choices. Not so here. We have an honest to goodness uh, villain uh, yeah. for for the ages. No, I mean it sets her apart from everything that we've looked at previously. Like as, however close um, the different. Uh, Postman always rings twice. Adaptations, uh, European adaptations that we looked at last week, got to the femme fatale. Uh, they were still women who like unintentionally wound up in a bad situation and are trying that, that they perceive as a very bad situation and are trying to get out of it through the means that they feel are available to them. Whether or not they're justified depends varies based on the movie, but they're not they're not Phyllis. No, um, Phyllis is calculating from start to finish, and this is so. So, like with um, with plenty of other noirs that we um, that that come even after this, well after this point, um, plenty of other studio movies of of this era, um, you get the you get the the sense the the studio backs off, like mm. they they ease up at the end. They give you the um, they give you a button that's not deserved on the on the film. Um, our our next our next film is going to have the same kind of thing happen to it, um, and that's yeah. because in the in the Hayes Code, uh, you know, people. It, I think I think this must be this must be different or this must be allowed to be as such because uh, because bad 
if you're a bad person, you're allowed to get punished. In, yeah, I feel like it's not so much. My guess would be it's not right. so much the Hayes Code as it is the studios just being like, people don't want to be depressed. Right. People will go to the movies to be entertained. Give them an uplifting beat at the end. Um, and I, like I've heard, doesn't, doesn't no, not point. this one. Apparently, yeah. it, used to, it originally ended with Walter going to the gas chamber. Um, wow. And that was filmed. And then I can't remember if it made it to testing or not, but then they cut it. They're like, it um, Walter would just sort of said, I realized it was really about him and Robinson and like that final scene between the two of them is all you needed. You didn't need him resolution as to what actually happened to him because he'd already killed that relationship. Um, Which was also, I feel like um, there is a strong critical argument for a queer lens on that relationship. Interesting. Yeah. I've seen um, that, you know, so much of it is like, the, his push and pull between Stanwyck and Robinson. Hmm. Well, and, and uh, I mean, Robert Robinson's got such a fascinating character here. He, uh, I, of all things, a I little love, man. Uh, the the insurance investigator with the little man in him is is like the most virtuous man in all of noir. <laughs> he's 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 just he's a sympathetic figure. Um, I think, and the film needs it because it's otherwise bleak as hell. Um, and oh, yeah, this is a little bit of fun too, yeah. And it's interesting, and this is apparently exactly what Kane wanted to do with the the source material. But it's that it's that idea that that you can lay the perfect plan, you can put it all in motion, but it's it, it's it's that human detail you can't account for, and that's what's going to be your undoing, um, even if everything else goes exactly as you intend it to. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, again, classic fatalism and just, you know, men make plans and God laughs uh, is definitely a, a general trope of classic noir, especially, I feel like. Um, yeah, and also, something you pointed out there, you know, I, the, the uh, this movie is so important, not just to the femme fatale, but to noir in general, that it had a knockoff, knock-on effect of, we wound up with, like, a subgenre of just protagonists who are insurance salesmen. Like there, there are a surprising number of movies about insurance salesmen in the classic noir era. That is no doubt in part due to this. It's got to be, and, and 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 yeah, but it made it made something like insurance seem thrilling. Um, and I think I, I highlighted this too as part of a, another another angle that I want to um, discuss. But this is a. This is so much a movie about commodification, mm -hmm. and um, and and uh, and it starts with Stanwyck, and that 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 Walter's obsessed with the anklet she wears. Uh, that um, that they meet up in supermarket, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, and there's a there's a, a line where the customer says, "I don't know why they always put what I want on the top shelf," mm -hmm. <laughs> and. And how perfectly does that sum up everything here? Um, no, I, and and it all you know it comes down to how do we maximize the the capital gains on this crime that we're going to commit, and mm -hmm. um, and then it's that greed that kind of helps push things along. Yeah, hmm. um, and uh, and and so I even though even though you you get the sense that that there's a commodification of of Phyllis herself, it doesn't. It, it, it in most cases, I would I would find that to endear some sympathy toward her. It does not because she's just so damn evil, right? Well, be, and because she, as we discover, purposely put herself into a situation where she would be commodified, right? That she killed the wife so that she could assume this value, um, and so it is. You know, and that gets back to like an argument of why classic femme fatales are so striking is because it allows female characters agency that they otherwise wouldn't have in, in that society and, and allows them to, to act upon the plot um, in life and death circumstances. But, um, you know, this sort of a larger social critique. And either way, she's one cold cookie. Yeah. That's not even a saying. Uh, I don't know, cold cookie doesn't mean anything. Well, I don't know. I'd eat a cold cookie. It's just, fine. Just one cold. I don't know. 
it's late. I follow you. Uh, I, I'm she's she's such a a good capitalist noir villain, but I'm like on that angle. I'm especially next week. We're gonna we'll get into that a little bit more with one of our our selections. Uh, but I um, I I find that to be uh, the such a, a fascinating examination of of that of yeah, of that capitalist system in at work in noir and what kind of villains it produces or antagonists it produces and uh and she seems really symptomatic of that yeah and that's a good point too that you know when we were looking at the detective it was largely about a blue collar character moving through worlds. Um, but there was sort of a, you know, the, the, that shifted the focus a bit while there's still a class critique at work. And here it feels like we do, uh, you know, at least in these movies and in next week's movies, it is largely situated amongst people of means. Um, and it is sort of a, people who have hunting even more um, is sort of the, the, you know, if, if you buy into a, like, if you take the critique that horror is an inherently conservative genre and sort of apply it to crime as well, especially the moralistic crime of the forties and fifties, then like the moral of it is be grateful for what you have when you've already got plenty. Um, would seem to be uh, this compared to like all of the um, Postman Rings Twice adaptations we watch, which are about people without much, but it's also driven by like honest dislike of, you know, there's, there's a little bit of greed, but it's mostly just being in a bad situation and uh, resorting that's to gonna come into play in our next, our next film too tonight. Uh, yeah, also, sure. yeah, but, as a, a counterbalance to this, because because very much very different from from Phyllis's position. Well, yeah, where, I mean, this next one is a very weird. Lot to unpack. It's yeah, a strange movie. I mean, not strange, but it it's really interesting because it is right at the start of noir, right at the start of the femme fatale, and it feels like a little bit like the path not taken. Uh, when we get to it, to me, like sort of a, if this had been successful in double indemnity, wouldn't, and I think on a certain fundamental level that couldn't have happened because of the, like the different choices also doom it to not achieving that level of success, but it could have set a template that would have taken noir and femme fatales and, and all that in, in a different direction. We'll get to that. We're not talking about that movie yet. We're talking about this movie, which is, I mean, again, I just have to like the, the, precision level plotting this this rewatch was just what really stuck with me it was just it's so it's so terrific so watching things wa watching it all like you said it all gets set up and then it all starts falling over piece by piece and you and you know where it's going and and then and and then it doesn't undo it it right uh that which is always your worry when you're watching a movie of this era <laughs> that that something's gonna come along that's gonna that's gonna take the wind out. Yeah, yeah, uh, and 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 just that like it's so smart about giving you those tools so that you know it is it is the Hitchcock tell the audience there's a bomb under the table writ large to an entire movie, and so the first half is telling you there's a bomb under the table, and then every scene in the second half is knowing exactly what the bomb is in every scene, and and without the movie having to tell you right, the movie never has to stop and be like. By the way, this is why they're worried. It's just ratcheting tension from there on out of how do they get caught? Is this the piece that's going to undo them? I wrote down a really minor note um, that 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 I had had not remembered from before, but I, I think is really indicative of just how economical this movie is and how everything, every single thing is done with intention. But but after after the crime, when they are in when they're all together in uh, in Barton's office, and uh, at, or uh, or is it is it his office or is it uh, the other his boss's office? His but boss's office. His boss's his boss's office. But they that Phyllis is offered a glass of water, which she takes, and she and 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 
isn't even called out to again after afterwards. She just puts it aside. And later, as the scene is wrapping up, um, Edward G. Robinson picks it up and and goes to to drink the water down, and then ends up spilling it all over himself. But uh, I just just I'll have to love watch that, that next like, time. It's like it's it's just a, a single prop that that had purpose, and uh, uh, every single thing in here is thought through, and. Um, and so far, I just, I'm sorry, I was thinking back again to this interview book, and, and it's so funny that you bring up Lubitsch, because Lubitsch was Wilder's mentor, and Wilder supposedly, or not supposedly, it's what he says in the interviews, that his his fallback for um, any challenge was, what would Lubitsch do? And that was how he'd think through a, a scene and how to make it interesting and, and to, on a writing or directing level. Well, I I totally buy that because you can see, you can see how Wilder stems from that school of of comedy, um, in in his approach to everything. Uh, I mean, Lubitsch is so uh, Wilder can be plenty silly, but Lubitsch is a little looser with it, and uh, and and I think, and even though I like Lubitsch even more, I love I love him to death. Wilder is just he's. He's a craftsman, and he's mm-hmm. he's so good at executing something like this. Yeah, well, it's, I think it's very telling that he says that he became a director because he got tired of directors fucking up his scripts. And he was just like, "Well, fine, I'm going to do it myself to make sure that they get it right." Um, and I think That's, that shows that his directing is just reason. in service to the story, in service to the script, um, and is purely about how do we tell this in the best way possible, not how do I imprint my vision onto this. Yeah. Well, um, for everyone listening, you um, you you know by now that if you haven't seen Double Indemnity, you should really fix that because this is one of the the great films of, of film noir. Its reputation, one hundred percent earned. It's nice to see. It's nice to sometimes see these like stone cold classics that you that you agree with totally. You're not even. I don't even want to nitpick it. It's just a great movie. Right. I mean, I was, I was talking with somebody, I was like, you know, there's, I I don't love it in the way that I love, like, Touch of Evil or um, Kiss Me Deadly. Like, yeah. those are, those are rougher movies, and they're making yes. big swings. And that's what I love about them is that their, their wild ambition sometimes outstretches their means, but it creates some, like, really exciting stuff. I, I love those movies in a deeper, more exciting way than I love Double Indemnity. But Double Indemnity is like near on just a perfect movie. Yeah, I think there's there's something to be said for them. I, I mean, to me, like, to me, it's it's in that Chinatown territory where I'm just like everything is firing exactly as it should be here. Um, whereas, whereas there's noirs I love even more. Like the for me, the Big Heat is my mm-hmm. is my end all be all. But um, but I love that for I love that for uh, its harder edge. Right. To it and uh where whereas this is just um is just so precise and uh i i love that script it's one of the best scripts out there right it's like it's only fault is that it has no faults huh. so hard um yeah i got nothing nothing bad to say about it um so it uh, i don't know if there's more you want to add in here no, but I think needless to say, it's a tough act to live up to for any film that was going to get paired to this, so no disrespect um, uh, as we as we jump into what's clearly the the second film of our group. But, yes, but still, um, I think a good one to to touch on um, yeah. as we as we fully kick off the femme fatale, and that would be 1945's Fallen Angel. The very day I hit the town of Walton, I walked right into a smoldering drama. Perhaps if I had moved on, it wouldn't have ended as it did things would have gone differently for a lot of people. June Mills, for instance, would have been spared ridicule she didn't deserve any more than she deserved what she got from listening to me. All I meant was, there's nothing in it for you chasing around like this. You ought to go home. No. Why do you waste your money on a guy like me? I'm not wasting my money. It's yours as well. I don't care what you do with it. Burn it up, tear it, do anything you want with it. Directed by Otto Preminger and starring Dana Andrews, Alice Faye, Linda Darnell, and a small role for the great John Carradine. This is written by Harry Kleiner, based on the book of the same name by Marty Holland. 
Fallen Angel was her first novel, uh, and then The File on Thelma and Jordan, which was another book or another movie that we discussed potentially doing this season, maybe doing a different season, uh, was also based on an unpublished novel of hers. And I think she just published a couple of novels and then kind of disappeared from what I yeah, remember. Yeah, it seems like, like she's got, she's she doesn't have much of a trace at all. Right, she like um, dies 30 years later, but otherwise just left the public conscious consciousness. Yeah. Um, but the plot of this one, uh, Dana Andrews plays Eric Stanton, another one of our drifters who comes into town and uh, winds up at a diner. I guess really bad things happen when drifters go to diners. And he finds himself stranded in the small town and takes immediate fascination with Stella, a troubled waitress, and wastes no time getting wrapped up in a traveling spook show at the expense of two prominent sisters in the town, June and Clara. Stanton falls hard for Stella and proceeds to go to great lengths to win her affection. Those great lengths include marrying June in an attempt to secure her money for Stella, a short-lived dream because Stella soon winds up murdered. Sounds naughty. That's the simplified version. Um, it really so, starts to get much more complicated after that. I mean, it takes some turns. Um, it's um, like three or four different movies in one, and not yeah, it is. in a successful way. Um. <laughs> but uh, but no, it is interesting because Alice Faye was the uh, is the sister that he marries, and who spoilers turns him to good by the end. Uh, her and her money and her love are enough to to right a wronged man. Um, but uh, and she had had a very successful career prior to that, um, but was like slowly exiting Hollywood and then. Uh, already because she wanted to be with her kid. And then uh, when studio boss Daryl Zenick uh, reshaped the film around Linda Darnell and cut, I think it was like 12 scenes with Alice Faye, uh, that Faye just quit the business at that point. She was still under contract, but she was just like, I refuse to do any more movies. You can't make me. Um, and it was done. And it was a shit because like, she's kind of forgotten now, but she was one of the most popular movie stars of the 30s. And was like a guaranteed box office draw for several years. It's it's so it, it like you said there are it feels like there's multiple movies all going on in here together, and um and this is not to say uh, that uh, the I don't think the ending is any good, but I feel like I've developed this case uh, where I just I just put up blinders to a lot of these studio job endings and i just like pretend they're not even there sure uh, i i in my head there's some some version of this that ends <laughs> ends way worse for dana andrews i i don't know i don't even know i like i should start off with i like preminger quite a bit as a, a director i um, yeah he's one of those like studio era very prolific directors who isn't the most consistent but he's always interesting and sometimes it's great so early, early on, and like as I, w I was a child when I first watched Anatomy of a Murder, which is mm. definitely one that that, that explains a lot. <laughs> um, and I love, and Laura is one of my favorite noir, and um, and I'm really, really pro Daisy Kenyon. Also, I think that's a great, mm. a great movie. Also with Dana Andrews. Um, uh, so Preminger's okay in my book. This one just, um, I think, it, I think it's a very interesting movie. Right. It's just got too much too much going on and it starts off stronger than it ends right and it's just too it's too compromised by the romance i think like that mm -hmm. is just too hard of a sell from where the film starts and it's just not as interesting as yeah as, so as the, the rest of it no the, to me and i think it seems like for you too the first third of the movie is the most interesting part where Dana andrews arrives into town again classic noir drifter comes to town uh, and what he decides to do to make some money is he becomes a uh, pitch man uh, and hype man for a traveling spook show, which is where um, Caradine comes into play. He is the uh, spiritualist in question. And that is very exciting. And you see him wheeling and dealing and, and conniving and scheming. Um, and like, that was great. And then the spiritualists go to leave town and like, we got a job. Do you want to keep going with us? And Dana Andrews says, I'm good. Uh, I'm, I'm going to stay here and try to seduce this Stella waitress who's 
established as a like pure gold digger basically is is what they're kind of working with um as a as an archetype and then the spiritualists leave the movie and you're like i want to go follow that movie i know i want to stay here for this movie it seems so so odd that it, that we just abandon all of that and then and and then it obviously it definitely calls to mind some of nightmare alley um yes. which well, which similarly abandons its it, it, its carnival settings even if it does ultimately return to them right um, no yeah that was i think that was my letterbox review i was like well between this and nightmare alley what i really want is just a 100 spiritualist noir um that would be a movie that would knock it out of the park for me uh the the uh this is not this is not exactly in that camp but criterion's got their uh got some gas plant gas lamp noirs on uh on oh yeah uh, i saw that that's right now um uh, which i need to I need to make my way through. Um, but I think that always it, more movies to watch. Always more. I I, I did just watch Dragon Wick, uh, which which gives some at least good gothic Vincent Price nonsense thrown into the, <laughs> the nice. noirish mix. Um, um, so yeah, so he stays in town to try to seduce Stella. Stella is unimpressed because she knows that he's got two cents to his name, and that's about it. Excuse me. So then he decides to. Uh, seduce this very rich single woman who kind of lives a lonely life and and then and then and then that's like its own like that one's that movie is fine it wasn't as good as the spiritualist stuff but it was still kind of like he's with both women at the same time and he's trying to play them off each other and this and the other thing and then stella gets murdered and then that's when things take for me at least a really dire turn because then I, and i think i think that murder is it on one hand, it sucks oxygen out of the room because she's a she's a compelling force in the movie, right. but it is an interesting development, and I didn't see it coming. And and sure. and and I think there was there was a way to spin that. And even with all of that, it only makes me wish that that angle with the the sisters was was even more non-existent, because because what 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 I found to be aside from the Aside from the spook show, I li- I really liked the diner as a as a pivot point for mm. for this. I like that I like that slice of Americana, you know, take out the the detective's office or the 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 bar, replace it with a with replace it with a, a very Lynch roadside diner. Um, I'm there for that. Wrote cast of characters moving through some potential suspects. Sure. Um, I think I and that's part of why the first stretch the movie works so well and why it gets off to a good start from from my point of view uh so yeah but it's just it's him solving a crime and it's her making him a better man and i'm just like these are not interesting applications of these characters it doesn't come together the way it 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 should or could yeah just on a fundamental level that romance does not work alchemy like i'm just like i don't he needs to pay yeah he's the, he needs to keep scheming because that's more fun, and then it ends and, terribly. And Dana Andrews gets is, away so, with it. is so good at being that kind of like like a little lizardy and yeah, yeah, he's definitely got some lizard eyes. Yeah, like like oh, he's funny. he does a, do a good job in in Laura as a more like you know good, well, yeah, good guy. He, yes, but he's also he's he's got Vincent Price and uh, Clifton Webb. Well, that's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> that's very true <laughs> i guess that's true the <laughs> context is important yes um uh, uh but um but no he's uh you he's he's skeezy you want you you don't want good things for him i, I and i i i feel like we're cheated by him being let off the hook yeah with that and, and maybe that's maybe that's where part of um Part of downgrading um, Alice Faye in there came in because it, I mean it doesn't she's in there enough that it already hampers the movie. Um, That's true. Uh, right, like on a personal level, I feel bad for. Her. Yeah, but on a on a movie level, I'm like I don't know if this would make it better if we had more of that. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, but it's so yeah. So, but that leads takes us back to Stella, right? And I I was right. my feeling watching this was sort of and as i mentioned earlier it felt like 
this is more influenced by the fallen woman narratives that we saw in the European films building up to this. And it represents to me, at least like if, if this had been a better movie, perhaps noir going down this path where it, it stays more true to the fallen woman narrative of, and not that, you know, obviously Barbara Stanwyck gets killed too. Right. So it's not like she doesn't pay for her crimes, but she is, it, it just feels very different than, than Stella. Stella is like drawn to money. And then that is her undoing, but also the movie hinges on her murder. Um, in that way of, um, you know, Scarlet so, Street preclude and, yeah. So I don't know Precursor. if this is just like, if this is Maltese Falcon and, and double indemnity and their kind of angle of noir being what wins out. But, um, but, but this and Postman feel like working class noir. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and those those do pop up in places. And we've already talked about the detective having kind of a different angle entirely because he just moves through those spaces. But, um, but for the most part, our, our femme fatales kind of tend to operate in, in a higher level of society or well, are, 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 are more upwardly mobile. And there's, and there is something more blue collar feeling, especially with the diner setting and, I th- think the most famous ones do. I think it, there's movies to come that we have not watched, or at least I have not watched, but based on the description, I feel like take the femme fatale and put them back into, put, put, put the role back into the, the blue collar setting. But I I'm think that also that. like the suspense, the ice skating noir that I'm really looking forward to. <laughs> uh <laughs> You know, so there's, you know, so I think part of it is the lesser known ones still do that. But I think that also is important that they are the lesser known ones, right? And that the ones that stuck stick with us, like Double Indemnity, like um, uh, Gilda. Gilda, yeah, I was like, not Laura, the other one. Gilda, like uh, Lady from Shanghai, right? Shanghai, is yeah. mm-hmm. the, the class difference is built into the appeal, as you said, of the, the commodification of the femme fatale. It's not just that she is sultry and that she is physically appealing. It's also that she represents a chance at, to jump stations for often for the male. Yeah. Lead. We like we like our our uh, femme fatale to have some glamour to her to feel right. like. Also, that's uh, totally true too. That it is like on a on a production level, it makes it easier to make her appealing to put her in a very nice dress with jewelry than to have her be a waitress in a diner. Right. Um, that's that, that's that's something it makes so much sense why why we get uh, why we get Visconti doing postman and it and it fits so much for what he's what what he's going after in that aesthetic, even even if Visconti is is totally someone that later on and like full on embraces upper class right. decadence. But you you um, couldn't but you couldn't do double indemnity as a neorealist film. No, no. Um I it it just it uh not, not for, not not on not on Walters. And the idea is that he's like, yeah, he's trying to he's trying to jump in line, right? He's trying to trying to get ahead, and he sees Phyllis as that as that thing sitting on the top shelf. Um, that's right, right. And and I think you're right that it's going to play out um, again and again. So um, this is the yeah Stella Stella has much more. Um, in, in common with Cora, for sure. Um, just, um, just as a, as someone who, by by virtue of of her, her lot in life, you have a little bit more inherent sympathy baked in for. Or with uh, La Chienne. Yeah, I mean, and literally any of these, you know, maybe not so much um, uh, Pandora, but for for so many, it, it feels very reminiscent of the like. I was a sex worker and then I got married because it gave me a way out of this, but now I'm stuck in a bad situation. It feels like two steps sideways from that, right? Because she is still like 
not a sex worker and not in that situation, but she is pursuing wealth, right? So there's still like a greed component that gives it that pulpier edge um, that she is like, yeah, sure, marry that woman and then steal her money to then be with me. But you also like, but also don't marry her because if you're married, then you can't marry me. Uh, she's still very hung up on the like getting married part of it. Um, I, I'm, I I'm really, I'm really looking forward to taking this carrying this discussion forward into future episodes and i'm especially interested in in how it maps on to our next episode because i think we've got a couple uh um we have two really interesting character examples to yes to pin to yes one thing that's interesting about stella as like to me being on the proto femme fatale side of things is that she is yes she is pursuing a goal but her tactics do not actually include criminal criminal behavior or instigating criminal behavior, right? Like she is willing to humor Dana Andrews and his attempts, but it's not like she is scheming to make them happen and, and like pushing no, I mean, his schemes forward. She doesn't have she doesn't have a lot of agency in it, which and obviously culminates in her basically getting fridged to move the plot further along. And I think you have a really smart. Um, you know, you made a note here about like premature, premature's femme fatale being someone that all the male characters obsess over, which is very true here too, um, and in his other movies. Um, and and yeah, it does it does turn her more into that, as we saw in the earlier films, like object of tragic object rather than cold hearted manipulator. <laughs> Yeah, and we haven't we aren't doing Laura this season, um, and I I think there's place to discuss it elsewhere. But it is to me that's the ultimate dissection of of male gaze in noir. It's mm. uh, it it's sure. literally framed that way, and 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 how it unfolds, and uh, and with this with this person who is for the longest time just a picture on a on a wall, right? Literally, and, the idea rather than the thing, yeah, or the person. And and Laura is not, um, is not a criminal. Is not is not in any way uh, like she's not someone that is trying to um, to manipulate men at all. There's no there's there's no there's nothing villainous about her. Right. Uh, does she still qualify as a femme fatale? That's probably up for discussion. But is she someone who's near? If you're looking at it as far as someone whose presence spurs men. The crime, bad things. Then, right. By a certain definition, I, I suppose. Yes, but it's a very, it's a very like biblical Eve uh, based. Yeah. View of it, I feel like. Um, yeah. Uh, anything else you want to chat about with with Fallen Angels specifically? Uh no. I think. I mean, it, it's uh, it, it's certainly um, it's a bumpy it's movie. A minor. Yeah. Uh, a, a minor entry in here and and in our defense we had a lot of bangers this season <laughs> so especially in the um, next like the, 10 years of film history it is yeah uh, it's a but lot. I, I think it's i think it's a noteworthy one i think it's i think it's good to check in on a on a premature we're going to come back to him later um, and i think it's important just I, in the cycle right that it, it is early and hollywood is still figuring out what what is this going to be um even if it's not like a very conscious you know, it's not like they're sitting around being like the femme fatale. What would that be? But it is, I think, you know, a lesson learned. And this, I think, kind of leads us to our wrap up, right? That it is a lesson learned that one of these is successful both critically and commercially, and one of these is less so. And I think that that, as I was saying, I think that ends up being two roads, and they go the James M. M. Cain road of <laughs> I really don't trust women, and not the. Uh, you know, more biblical Pandora's box, uh, La Chienne road of these fallen women cause problems, but they're also tragic figures themselves. You know, I, I feel like it, it kind of sets us off on a on a on a juicier, pulpier path. Um, and I think it's because it also resonates. So, um, yeah, brief brief story. I um, listen to uh, I don't listen to a lot of true crime. But I do listen to uh, a Wondery podcast called uh, Over My Dead Body, which is written and written produced by actual crime reporters in Florida. Um, so it tends to have like a little bit more class and respect than I feel like a lot of true crime podcasts do. Um, 
the reason I bring it up is their latest season is about a uh, is basically double indemnity, but it happens in real life in the year two thousand, and it's um, these two sets of friends, best friends, all of them since preschool. They get married. Uh, the husband in one relationship and the wife in the other one start an affair. Uh, the they the wife doesn't want to divorce her husband, so they decide to off him. And the um, and the guy having the affair is an insurance salesman, so they set him up with an insurance claim. They extend it behind his back. That I mean, it's I won't go into the whole thing, but it's it is the plot of. I'm surprised they never brought it up that they weren't that the in summary they weren't like they must have watched Double Indemnity to learn. I like, I mean, it it is the plot of Double Indemnity. It just takes like 16 years for it to unravel instead of. A month or two oh. um but uh they didn't have a little man they didn't have a little man yeah and there's no yeah it was the 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 insurance got paid out so um it got left up to state police and to the the victim's uh mom who who kept pushing for justice um anyway good good listen but i to me i think that's part of what makes double indemnity last right like part of it is the craftsmanship part of it is the the talent of everybody involved absolutely but part of it is is the like it touches on a sordid but true element of human nature that um we don't often really get to see but also presents it in a very straightforward fashion and doesn't give you the easy out of being stylized right like a lot of you know like you make the argument that like torture porn gives us a glimpse into a true real thing that happens in the world is that, that people get tortured, but it's also so stylized and heightened that you're not like it, you know, it, it gives you a safe distance. And I feel like this, I think it's a, it's an under just by something so mundane as insurance right? and some, and an act where, where everyone wants a little bit more, right? Everyone, mm -hmm. everyone feels like, like, Oh, if I could only just get that, and then, every, and and it's not such a leap to think people would maybe just try to overextend themselves a bit, right. maybe try to reach a little too far. And especially and, in our 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 perfect capitalist society, where nothing is wrong, <laughs> um, it's exactly. a little too easy. Uh, and I will say another reason to to listen to this other podcast is that um, they one of the things that they get into is how the. Uh, the woman, the the woman who's an adulterer, is, ends up being punished far more, even though she, in no way, actually committed the murder. Like at worst, she helped plan it, but also possibly didn't even do that and was just sort of aware of it and kind of aided and abetted after the fact. Um, but you know the what the femme fatale archetype taps into within our society i think is also represented by that in that it is like the the fact of a woman killing her or even helping to have her husband killed is far more grievous of a crime than the man who killed another man out of love and passion um in the same way that we can follow you know the protagonist is walter neff and we're like this dummy but we're he is the protagonist and we're on board with him but barbara stanwyck is evil incarnate you know right. even though like she didn't actually kill him walter neff killed him barbara stanwyck aided and abetted and helped plan and assisted but like and she as we find out killed this other woman but the you know the man who right. the murderer he the did. actual murderer is our protagonist and and so i think he's it's, the it's one he's the one who's sitting with uh, in the in the office as he's confessing o over Right, he's the one who's given some note of grace at the end with Edward Robinson. Not so much for her. That's a that's a really interesting um, note to end on, and I think uh, uh, you know uh, reminds us again the uh, that that we are approaching all of this through the male gaze with heavy, with uh, with very male writers and and directors, and and it's just uh, yeah, it's not going to be until. The 90s that we get to a woman well i guess that's on the uh, well i was thinking of wakowski's 
and you know i mean they're trans so i would put yeah. that as like a, a woman written and directed noir as the one before that that we're gonna i don't think so not for not for directing no for i mean we have, um, we have source, oh, source we, material right uh and when we do um and i guess fallen angels based on a novel written by yeah. a female author but um and if we do uh white men are cracking up that's that i think, believe that was written and directed by a a, a female a writer director so but still that's that's also it's, 90s it, right that's yeah. that's that's a ways away and part of that is just this the movie system in general what do you know it's bad for hmm. women who would have guessed rough out there um well anything else you want to uh tap into before we i'm good to this out? get into that movie that we talk about every week that i couldn't think of the name yeah. of what's that movie yeah. it's very late <laughs> Fred, uh, it's, our time, it's time for What's in the Box in honor of Hits Me to Deadly, that movie. Uh, what's something that you recently watched that's so good it deserves to be glowing in that suitcase? Um, well, let me check. Did, have I talked about Electra, My Love on here? I don't think I have. It's been such a long so, time. No. Uh -uh. The, name, the name's not familiar to you, right? No. Okay. Uh, I've got two recommendations. The first is a film called uh, Electra, My Love, um, which was made... Uh, I believe behind the Iron Curtain, uh, and it's a an adaptation, as the name suggests, an adaptation of a uh, the Electra um, <laughs> character and plays from classic Greece, but um, done in this fascinating hybrid of film and live theater, where it is not bound by realistic sets. It's it's a series. It's you know it's an hour and a half movie, but it's a series of twelve. 10 minute long take or not 10 minutes like eight minute long takes um of these characters moving through this landscape and entering into and out of amorphous scenes with lots of extras kind of shifting from chorus to prop to specific character to musical number uh it, it is one of those exciting movies that kind of pushes your definition of what a movie can be um and just I, uh, had a blast watching it. That sounds like that'd be right up my alley. I think you, um, I think but... you will really enjoy. I mean, some of what what's being done. Some somebody I follow Letterbox is like the two most stressful jobs in the world are like army sharpshooter and the focus puller for this director because these these I mean these these takes are like it's a stationary camera, but it's panning and and uh, tilting and zooming all across this outdoor space as these actors wander into and out of each other's shots. It's like an Altman shot on steroids because it lasts for eight minutes and it involves hundreds of extras and highly choreographed movement and like animals and peacocks and horses and dance number. I mean, it's incredible what's being done in these shots. And, but the framing is, is fantastic throughout and like the, the composition and picture is great. It it's really worth a watch. Um, so that's my first recommendation. And my second one is I uh, I just watched uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on Paramount Plus. And, uh, you know, it's not a perfect movie, but it is made of a lot in, of... As in the new one? Or as the new in one. The, yeah, the, the new one. I saw, I saw that. Right, right. Yeah. Yes. But yes. it's just made with so much care and charm and attention to detail and has a really great third act. And so it really, it really won me over by the end. Um, good, good um, really consistent, good art, art direction. I like, I've, I've, yeah, the styles, uh, I like the whole, the whole wonderful. Look of it. So, you know, not again, I don't think it's like a home run or a, an amazing movie, but I think it's a great movie and, and worth the watch if you haven't watched it yet. Uh, yeah, what I haven't you? even said that. Oh, what, a, um, all right, let's see. Where to, oh, I feel like I've, I've, I've seen quite a bit. In the recent in the recent um, month or so since we recorded last, um, all right, we're gonna. I'm gonna turn this into a a quick Michael Mann appreciation. Hell yeah! Uh, blast. Um, I saw um, I saw Thief, which I which I really liked. Um, just um, I I I don't I don't think I'm underrating Michael Mann, but there is something I I do feel like I I've. Uh, I like heat. I I do like I do like heat, but uh, I 
I, that takes up so much of the man conversation often mm. that that and I happen to really I happen to really like Miami Vice. Um, I and, have not seen it since it came out. I'm really excited to revisit and in light of its reappraisal, I feel like it's become a beloved movie. I, I think it's I think it's quite good, and I think it does very much a lot of just that vibe that Thief has. I I for Chicago, Miami mm. Vice has for Miami, and I like I like that very much. Anyway, Thief is uh, especially um, in moments where it just it just stays quiet and lets you observe. It's mm. just it's a thing of wonder. Um, scores great. Uh, I mad appreciation for it and i had never seen last of mohicans and i really really loved it and i don't yeah, that seems I right more, up your alley more um more than i thought was possible for me to to love it but i i i um, my mom loved that movie so i watched it a lot growing up i'd never seen it until like a month ago um and i and i will i think the last um 15 minutes of that movie has has got to be some of the best um filmmaking of the 90s it's mm. just it, it's it's just music and image and and again when man does when man just is quiet and he lets image and music and framing do all the talking and violence always violence uh but uh he's he's like the greatest chronicler with respect to scorsese he's the great chronicler of american violence yep. um and argument uh yeah, really like, really we, like. We we love man in this house. Yeah, um, so that's my my Rex for the nice. No, always always support a good man recommendation. Just a career of bangers. Excited for Ferrari. Yeah, I'm. I, I yeah, I'm, anything anything given Penelope Cruz a, a good good role, I'm all in for. All right. Well, thanks as always for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt. Join us next time when we'll be taking our noir with a heavy dose of melodrama in two very family-focused classics of the decade. Mildred Pierce and Leave Her to Heaven are coming right up. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend.